in a world where globalization remains the preferred buzzword, standing in for empire and imperialism. One bear and one lady have transitioned to power, establishing their hegemony within your ears and your heart. It's Knackers and the Vatch. Oh, you deserve better than this, comrade. Uh, I don't just mean, you know, you deserve better than life under capitalism, but of course you do. You deserve more than a second consecutive episode of Knackers and the Vag, featuring only Knackers, this guy, the unusually silent teddy bear, and me, the Vag, the uh, garrulous lady comrade, who speaks a little too often from the province of her ass. Look, we're going to do our best, uh, as you do deserve at least that for the price of your time in listening to Knackers, Knackers, Knackers and the Vag, 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 or indeed the price of your wages. If you do give me some of those on the Patreon, you know, patreon.com forward slash Helen Razor, and thank you, you marvellous bastards. Uh, How better to do one's best than not bore you from the start with all the very boring reasons that there is no podcast guest yet again? The guest list features again only me and my adorable bear. So I'll just bore you a bit and say, well, there's one of several reasons and I've been very busy fixing my parents' internet. Do you know this experience? If you've ever assisted older people of whom you are the uh, genetic or or, uh, nurturing result with any technology matter, you'll know exactly how rewarding this is for all concerned. You know, you might have had that experience where dad suddenly comes to believe that it was you who's been changing the virtual keyboard on your mum's iPad to the Armenian character set Even though you weren't there on the many, many occasions it's occurred before and on the most recent occasion you were there but in the other room with Dad explaining to him how a secure password manager works. Um, And anyway, look, my point is um, I know they didn't mean it and I know that Dad didn't mean it and when he's frustrated with all the new stuff, he's absolutely forced, like a a lot of older people are, into doing, like, you know, changing his login details and going paperless and upgrading his devices that are just, you know, I mean, frankly, as confusing as all get out. And all he really wants to do is send a goddamn letter, but the man won't let him. You know, no, because he has to get an email address and a 10-letter passcode containing special characters. But, you know, so totally... You know, you understand, I understand how people can get um, frustrated and um, it's particularly frustrating when no one else is available but a grown-up kid to um, tell your parents how to stay afloat in what they don't unjustly see as a stinking ocean full of absolute digital garbage. So, you know, this may have happened to you, you're there with your olds, um, managing all of those, you know, very kind of inevitable resentments that that form between kids and, and the carers that raise them. And then also what you're all managing is their social experience of maybe beginning to feel obsolete. 
Unfortunately, you can't have all of the details of what befell my parents and the many, many, many angry letters I wrote to many state and uh, corporate entities uh, because, you know, damn it, they haven't given me permission. Um, But, you know, I was with them for a week, you know, locking down or speeding up their devices and you can probably pretty easily imagine the sorts of things that might happen to uh, your elders, our elders, to any person who is left for one reason or another vulnerable uh, and confused in some sort of margin of um, ignorance or fear or inaccessibility. In this case, it happened to be the digital divide. Um, So I want to talk to you about this a little bit later on and um, my experience of how, you know, an older man like my dad, a white white man of of baby boomer vintage might react to this feeling of what some of our most idiotic policymakers began to call exclusion in the 1990s. I mean, you might have heard the words exclusion and inclusion and thought they were particularly fine. I probably won't end up problematising them in a very clever way. Um, I'm just working my way to a a good critique of why those words really shit me. But that's uh, by the by. I want to look at some stuff indirectly that some of you have written to me about your own experience of what we might call exclusion at work and and also mine. And I want to examine this this feeling of what is called being excluded critically and ask really if um, the ideas that are so popular about exclusion and inclusion are not a bit shit. And again, uh, full warning, I probably won't get to any kind of good conclusion, but you listen to this podcast or or if you never have, you're listening now, I warn you, I never resolve a thing. Who am I? Karl Marx? No. Go and read Capital if you want answers Um, or at least you want to learn to ask the right questions. But um, before Helen gets all emotional, Let's cheer ourselves up with two bits of relatively decent news. Um, and the first being, you've all heard that um, Bernie Sanders will contest the US presidential election in 2020. And yes, 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 of course, he's not going to answer all the dreadful, bloody questions posed by the US hegemon. Um, you know, one that's preserved its primacy by the threat of mass death since, oh, what was it, 1945? So, you know, no single person is is ever the retort to the question of how life on this planet is lived. And, and if you reckon that remarkable people move history for the better, you're listening to the wrong terrible podcast because it is my belief, perhaps yours too, that it's only when we, the masses, move together and rest what we need from the powerful that the world moves in what we might call a democratic direction, right? And fuck no, the most qualified woman to be president is as underqualified to set things to right as the most qualified man. Shit, have you noticed this? Like what is it with a president that seems to have like swallowed the lie whole that important people should be the ones that we trust to make important decisions. This is not to say that, you know, people with elite forms of knowledge such as scientists should be poo-pooed. It's just saying dictator of the working, uh, dictatorship of the working class by the working class, friends. Um, and the expertise of the powerful is expertise only in staying powerful. Still, 
you know, back to Bernie, by no means perfect and by no means has an impeccable record and we can we can't really say that his um, initial overtures to, for example, um, the people of Black Lives Matter showed us a man who was really ready to concede that he was wrong or communicating badly. But Bernie's power is not about the the power that that Bernie may hold in in twenty twenty one. It was in twenty sixteen his power to ignite a powerful question. Um, that I, you know, I, I know a lot of people in my life, probably your life too, have um, started to ask after the the West was busy not asking it for for around forty years, and and the question is, you know, what something like um, I guess what can we the masses do if we get together and move? So Bernie's real value was in laying bare a few basic truths for people in the West and particularly Anglophone people. Or really just one, which was the fact of class warfare. And I know when, you know, you say or I say something like class warfare, um, there are people who will think that it's awfully old-fashioned and there might be people who say, oh, there she goes with their politics of envy or um, a class is so old school, don't you see that all people are equal now? And, you know, yes, all people should be equal, as problematic as that concept is, um, but we're not. There are two groups in the world. One is tiny and owns all the shit and the other is massive and works toward the wealth of this tiny ruling class who owns all the shit. So there's those who demand our labour and charge us economic rent and then there's the rest of us. So whichever way you slice and dice it and however much we're coerced to believe that say, I I don't know, like Jeff, Jeff Bezos is just like us with his marital problems or whatever, or that the British monarchy is as modern as tomorrow and truly human because, you know, they take their heirs to the throne home in, you know, like Ford Focus cars in baby capsules or whatever. The fact remains that there are people whose poverty, misery and labour builds the wealth of a few in different degrees. Not saying that I have it as bad as a female textile worker in Bangladesh. I'm just saying that we are of the same class. So this doesn't mean at all that factors like you know, race or culture or gender, sexuality and any other identity categories don't matter or just to be shoved aside or, or ignored. But what it does mean, and I know a lot of people like find this frightening, but there are these totalising categories of ruling class and working class. Bernie points it out and he points out that there is tension between these two groups. And that tension can do an awfully good job of hiding itself. It's what we Marxy types like to call ideology. So Bernie makes this plain and for all his shortcomings, I think he'll probably continue to make it plain in 2020. I mean, even if he does go on with all that Russia ruined the election shit, if he keeps talking about class warfare, and I think he will, that's a good thing. And I think he will because he's just too old to change. Um, But you know, and if we think about some of the, the the people who were just say fourteen last election or, or twelve, they are adults coming into political consciousness now. So whether Bernie becomes president or not is really not the point for me. Um, probably for you either. We agree about too much here, don't we? On knackers, 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 and the badge, badge, badge. The fact is that he explains this division, and this division is is concealed to large numbers of people but 
you know, he makes the case against blaming others, you know, say like um, a, a Trumpist type cynically chooses to say um, workers of colour are to blame, um, a political correctness gone mad is to blame a bunch of uh, students who have ar- arguments about culturally appropriate sushi at a nice East Coast college are to blame, ball-busting women, whatever, whatever, whatever is handy for them to blame for, say, the discomfort of a particular voting block. And Bernie just points his finger at the ruling class and he says, well, you know, them and the system um, that protects them, they're the enemy and that is valuable if that understanding, which is a thing that people in the West have largely forgotten to identify, to even consider as something that can be discussed in this modern day and age where we all have the democratising influence of smartphones, except if you're my parents, who now maybe know how to use them a little bit better. Um, but, you know, that's that's valuable. There's another piece of positive news before we go into the sad shit. Um, well, kind of, you know, bit positive if you're a bit of a grump like me. So, you know, Peter, the people for the ethical treatment of animals, like for years, they've absolutely given me the tom tits, really. They've um, released, I don't know if you've ever followed it, but some truly appalling promotional material for campaigning for, I, I guess, what you could call their primary cause, which is veganism. Now, I'm not a vegan, but I do actually recognise veganism as the ethically sound choice, which is different from saying that it's a politically sound choice. Um, You know, I would be more at peace just with myself, um, not to consume products made from dead beasts, but um, leaving aside that I love a steak, um, I know the world would be more at rights and more at peace if, you know, large regulatory organisations didn't subsidise cattle and all of that. And, you know, every time such and such from the United Nations says, you must be a more ethical consumer, well, that's not going to change the world, is it? I I mean, we can't adjust our shopping lists to the point of causing revolution. And, I mean, we've kind of got to do away with shopping, really, or changing the relations of production. Anyway, back to the plot. Uh, Peter has done some really shitty, hugely sexist and, in my view, pretty damn, you know, racist, paternalistic um, and certainly a pro-ruling class, like, snobby ads to make its case, which annoyed me because, hey, I'll use any excuse not to be a vegan and they were just giving me more. (laughs) Uh, I mean, come on, like, give me a really good guilt trip, Peter. Like, seriously, like, shock me out of my meat-eating. Um... And then um, the other day they did something that I quite liked and maybe you saw it maybe you liked it too. So, you know, the Google Doodle thing, Um, you you know, open up Google as you do and there's a little animation or some other form of visual tribute to celebrate the life of whoever uh, in history Google decides is good for its liberal branding. So, Here in Australia, and I think maybe even the world, um, Google celebrated the birthday of the now-dead crocodile hunter, a.k.a. Steve Irwin, the other day. And then Peter says this on its social media account, which I wouldn't have seen if it weren't reported all over the shop. 
and it said Steve Irwin was killed harassing a ray, that is a stingray. He, uh, uh, and then um, semicolon, nice, Peter. Uh, he dangled his baby while feeding a crocodile and wrestled wild animals who were minding their own business. Today's Google Doodle sends a dangerous fawning message. Wild animals are entitled to be left alone in their natural habitats. That's not the fawning message. Um, excuse my poor enunciation of that. Actually not terrible tweet from Peter, a group in the business of making appalling tweets. Anyway, everybody loses their shit. Well, actually what they said was nothing that wasn't said about Irwin during his life here in Australia and nothing that's actually untrue. Like, I'm not happy he died. I'm not saying that. But in 2004, and it was big news here, just a few years before he died, he dangled, I think the kid's called Bob, the one that's not Bindi, um, before the mouth of a crocodile at um, his zoo. And um, then he only offered a very clumsy apology. And, you know, this footage had seen nationwide and it was fucking idiocy. You know, I don't live in crocodile territory. The majority of us in the territory, erroneously marked on the map as Australia, don't live in crocodile territory. Uh, people from far north Queensland are always, quite rightly, calling us idiots and saying, like, you can't even swim in a pool after dark. You know, you, you can't. You will get eaten by a crocodile. I mean, it's terrifying. I'm prepared to believe all these warnings. People do get eaten by them. Uh, I mean, not like it's, you know, a number one kind of like, Danger, but I mean, shit, be sensible around crocodiles. And um, most of us don't have a, a clue how dangerous things are unless uh, we live with them. And this man whose TV performance of imperial command over the, the territory called Australia was you know, always an offence. And it just got critically stupid. And many people were discussing this at the time with that act. Um, not only that, like I can remember and I looked up just to make sure he was investigated for violating permits law and basic good sense with uh, Australian fauna many times while he lived here. And yes, we're all sorry that he died doing what he loved, which was performing reckless stunts with creatures for profit while donning some pro-environmental fig leaf. Um, but in short, this is the week that Peter didn't shit me. Um, if you were raised in this land and you somehow grew not to be a fuckwit, which is a huge danger here, you know, even bigger than being eaten by a crocodile, this sort of performance of Steve Irwin type, again, I'm sorry he's dead and this is totally a poke at the public product and the public performance and not of the private man and the people who, who mourn him. Erwin, the performance, right, the public guy, wasn't just an embarrassment because, frankly, I mean, people in the US knew about him years before we ever got an idea about how we were being kind of like apprehended uh, in, in other nations. But he was a real reenactment, a real recrudescence of a thing that I guess some of us thought had disappeared in the 1990s, but it came back, a real recrudescence of the colonial settler you know, that real shit show that we really could rather do without here in Australia. You know, the white, synthetically friendly family everyman, um, just, you know, presuming mastery over nature and all its creatures. I mean, that fucking should have died with Burke and Wills, a, if you've not heard of it, a famous, famously disastrous expedition by white men into the interior of Australia. And if you've never... 
read anything about this uh, tragic comic account. Um, I, I would recommend just looking up the the uh, inventory of all the things those dudes took into the unknown with them from the city of Melbourne to you know, go into the desert to search the Lenten interior for mysteries. Uh, these things from memory included a full dinner service um, which would be placed on a mahogany table which they'd also um, taken with them and apparently what they also took with them was uh, racist stupidity so absolute that they didn't pay heed to the warnings or even accept the help of the people who had lived and worked this land for millennia. Um, anyway, so Peter actually saying something decent, uh, the legend of the, you know, settler colonial, why every man being questioned, kind of good news. Not like good news up there with uh, Bernie might give a few people a bit of uh, working class or, uh, you know, uh, 101, but, you know, not bad. So I've done that because I thought about it and I'm trying to keep you happy before I go back into the sad bit, which is all about fixing your parents' computers because nobody else will. So just to put my parents in some kind of context, right, they're quite comfortable. They have the money they'll need to live well and in, you know, entertaining leisure until they die. And I'm really glad of that. And a little bit of a hello here to those uh, millennials that, you know, we can see Understanding the divide that is really, as Bernie would tell you, ruling class and working class is that being of boomer and millennial. Um, just don't do that. Really, it's wrong. Resenting the comfort and the sheer generational luck of some white people in some Western nations who get to live as we all should in our twilight years is just wrong and a bit fucked. And I do see policymakers and journalists blame an entire generation for taking their wealth away from them. You know, a lot of people have this idea that there's a certain amount of money and, you know, some people take it all. Uh, this is not my understanding of um, the production of money or the movement of capital. You know, so they didn't take your wealth. They didn't take your free education and shit on it. And, 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 you know, as though a bunch of working class people could ever make that choice. They never had the power. So it's deluded to make an enemy of a small group who scored, you know, scored it pretty lucky, who did quite well. And this is even the case if they do say main th mean things about how your generation is terribly lazy. You know and I know your generation is not lazy. I mean, your generation is in the shit and, you, you know, you're struggling energetically each day to survive, most of you. So just don't resent other working people. If there's one thing to take from Bernie and, you know, it's not that he's a, a, a god and, you know, the answer to all of history's ills. It's just that he can tell you about, a little about class warfare. Keep an eye out for it. Um, they didn't steal your shit. So neither did my parents um, and they're okay financially. And, um, you know, I will tell you that this is largely down to luck, but just in case they ever listen to this podcast, I do not by any means wish to minim minimise their great efforts as workers. Um, uh, yeah, okay, she's covered herself, hasn't she, knackers, my little bearsy. So they accumulated what they could for their retirement and now they have quite a nice dwelling, quite a nice life, but even so they experience the thing that 
Tony Blair and others of his era called exclusion. It was a third way word. And, it, it, you know, it's still a pretty popular word today. I think that Australia's own um, Deputy Prime Minister, who was then to become the Prime Minister, Julia Gillard, was the Minister for Social Inclusion. Funny words. So let's just go with this idea of exclusion and say that my parents, like a lot of groups, are excluded, or my dad in particular, excluded from a working understanding of technology. So, you know, they're quite lucky they've got me and other family and extended family members who can help them out, but even so, they're lost, or especially my dad has been lost. And spending a week with them and, and him in particular and learning just how often and how completely both of them had been ripped off by providers and software and hardware companies and, and generally bamboozled, I became interested in a lot of things that I'm going to write about because there is some interesting shit that goes on, but also in the conditions that caused particularly my dad's confusion. So I'm going to say that my mother is actually um, pretty open and receptive to technology um, and not, as your third way guy like Bill Clinton would say, excluded, which is really weird because when I first sort of considered it and I saw how fast she was moving along on her tablet and how much she taught herself to do without even admitting that she'd made these sort of learning leaps all by herself. But she's never worked with computers and she's never even liked them. Um, they were something that Dad did for work, but she had enough of an interest in Facebook where you could see pictures of, you know, who'd put on weight and who hadn't, and in Netflix, particularly in The Crown, that she was kind of like fueled into finding the knowledge and she just sort of works on her iPad in a way that I just hadn't thought she ever would. I mean, I did make her buy an iPad because I'd heard, I'm not an Apple user myself, but I'd heard that they were a you know, very friendly interface for people who were not hitherto familiar with computers and it, it seems like that is the case. Now, so dad is quite different. Like he was a very early computer hobbyist and I remember being eight or nine um, and I'm old, remember, so this is a long time ago. And he used to send away uh, for bits and pieces from Silicon Prairie uh, to build his own big clunky boxes. And I mean, there was a whole night where we were building a modem. Um, oh gosh, what was this? There was this old version of the internet called something vision. I can't remember what it was. But, you know, he was a real early enthusiast. He bought cheap bits, you know, ran this 8K computer using my my personal little crap tape recorder to store stuff on. And then eventually, of course, he began to use PCs at work um, and he was, a, he was a builder. So, you know, mostly a manual labourer, but then moved into a, a more of a managerial position. But so for him, you know, sort of ITC or whatever you call it, these were all tools of work. And whereas for mum, they were only ever something she got interested in when she found out that they could be used to, you know, socially interact with people that she already knows and things on which you could watch glamorous, expensive miniseries about the Queen. So her lifelong distaste for digital devices was overcome really quickly in relatively late life. Whereas dad had a lifelong fascination for IT, which I think he saw as, um, you know, being 
part of that generation of working class boys made good. He saw it um, as very democratising, very liberating and all that stuff. But that lifelong interest, which became a work interest, had actually made digital engagement um, a real obstacle for him in later life. Are you with me? You understand? So what we have is a man who, as mum puts it, just won't stop to ask for directions. He just sort of believes that he knows the map. So mum's problems were really easy to fix. They were pretty simple. They were like, here's where the settings button is on your iPad and the next time you accidentally change your keyboard to um, Armenian, um, you know, this is what you do. Or here's my Netflix password, mum. Use it until they make you buy your own Netflix account, which is probably not going to happen anytime soon. Whereas dad's problems are really hard, even though he's got more computer knowledge. And they're not hard because he's lost his marbles. And they're not hard because he's a dummy, because he's not a dummy and he hasn't lost his marbles. But he's lost his mojo, or as Tony Blair might put it, he feels excluded. And I think he has a sense of something that I felt very much, which is of particularly lately, which is of feeling unproductive in the world of work. So this is sort of just some of the things I observed in what was, as you probably understand, a very emotional week because teaching your parents how to use their devices is always emotional. So a man of my dad's age uh, had a very particular role in labour or production you know, we have this full employment regime and that meant that uh, men, mostly white men, in Western nations were able to earn a family wage. And for various reasons, this was unsustainable because any cycle of capitalism is unsustainable. Capitalism is this very dynamic thing that keeps changing, uh, needs new regulations to extend its life and eventually it fucks up. That's what you think if you're a Marxist, okay? Um... And so the other interesting sidebar here that is the cause of, I think, a a lot of uh, historical confusion between, say, your liberal feminist or your Marxist feminist or your Marxist. So the situation was by about 1970, a little bit later, um, many wives in these family wage-earning families were actually forced out to go to work. And so my mother's experience is of having to go to work and she held out for as long as she could but, you know, inflation and whatnot and eventually she took a cleaning job at night. And, you know, because she was a a working class woman, like the majority of people in the world are working class, she didn't have the excitement that you might read about if you're sort of thinking about liberal feminists like Betty Friedan or, or Gloria Steinem, right? Um, So they're all kind of like, oh, goody, finally women can express themselves freely and use their tertiary degrees in the wonderful world of paid labour. Not my mother's experience, not the experience of the majority of people. Work was something that you did to survive and equal pay was a good idea mostly because it meant a slightly higher wage for your unskilled labour. So I mean, this is not to say that, you know, working class women in in the West had not worked. I mean, certainly my grandmother worked, maybe your grandmother worked or mother worked or or whatever in unskilled labour. But, you know, it became after this sort of middle out growth as somebody like Robert 
Reich would call it of the full employment or Keynesian or New Deal period, whatever you want to call this um, this this age of great luck for baby boomers in the West, mostly white, it actually became necessary for women to work and not a joy because, like, how much does work suck anyway? For my mum, work was a means to an end and for dad it became an identity and um, for me it's become an identity too, really. I mean, you know, like I'm doing a podcast that nobody listens to you know, in order to relive my my glory days as a, a once gainfully employed broadcaster. No, I actually do like having a chat. I do, um, well, clearly, but, you know, I mean, I like the exchange that this thing, look, just be honest, Helen, you love the sound of your own voice. Um, but in the 15 years since my dad's retirement, um, I think he's really begun to feel unproductive. And this is not a judgment. You know, I'm not saying that he's silly about feeling unproductive because I feel exactly the same. The arse has completely fallen out of my sector. The only thing that I know how to do, um, which is make media uh, and where once it was pretty easy for a relatively skilled middle-class white lady like me to make a decent living providing amusement to uh, my kind, you know, now it's a daily struggle. You know, I mean, seriously, the, you know, I mean, don't feel too sorry for me because, you know, at least I own the means of production and stuff, unlike, you know, sacked auto workers and stuff. You can't take a factory around with you, can you? But, Anyway, so just speaking from my own experience, I do end up feeling excluded a lot of the time. A lot of my problems are to do with with work. I think my psychologist is probably pretty sick of hearing about it. Um, and so if I don't think about life like a Marxist and I don't recognise uh, the thing, work, from which I'm now partially excluded is a thing that you know, has always depended upon exclusion. And I get pretty sad. And so if the expression of your worth has always had, you know, a dollar value, and now it doesn't have a reliable dollar value, it's very difficult for all sorts of people not to be upset by that um, in, in both material, like obvious stuff, I can't go to the dentist, whatever, whatever. I can't buy a nice steak. Oh, God, please remind me to be a vegan somebody. Um but, you know, also in very a very deep psychological way. So, you know, I think about the exchanges um, that I've had with my mum or I've been thinking about them since this emergency internet trip and, you know, I think about things in the past where she gets cross and, you know, we have huge arguments, sometimes don't speak for years at a time and, you know, usually before this um, she'll rage at me. I mean, God knows what foul stuff I say. I'm in some kind of like zombie automaton abuse state when I'm engaged in these things. But I do remember what she says and often it's um, she tells me how hard she cooked and cleaned and how often she drove me around. Um, and, you know, and then I notice now that we're going through a period of getting on quite well that um, cooking and cleaning and driving me around as an adult is still stuff she finds rewarding, even though she might complain about it a bit. And this is all a little bit, easier for me to understand in view of this recent trip because my mother defines, you know, who she is in relation to how she's contributed to labour and her relationship to me 
sometimes changes according to my relationship to labour, like how productive I am, which at the moment is not fucking very, right? There's just work is for various reasons I won't bore you with kind of a difficult thing for me to do right now. Um, but she's raised two daughters who've become fairly productive and stayed productive um, uh, and she's very proud of like raising women who can be you know what she sees as independently productive and um she's very proud as as she should be of the way she helped dad get to work and i think about how she still does this work cooking and cleaning driving people around being you know an immensely sort of pragmatic pragmatic sort and how she still finds comfort and identity in it and she's good at all these things she's been doing it for a lifetime and she's just you know she is a very practical person but she's good at that kind of contribution to labor what i think uh nancy fraser would call social reproduction you know the unpaid uh labor of the homemaker which is entirely necessary or has been in one form or another uh to the production of more workers etc etc and then I think about my dad and how his so-called exclusion in this case from the internet is um, not really even a, a loss of, you know, what might be seen as masculinity, um, even though, you know, mum will say, oh, he's just like a man, he won't ask for directions um, from the map. But it's more about him just not being sure about where he fits in terms of labour and production. And so I sort of came to think, well, you know, when I feel excluded, it really has a great deal to do with how I, you know, fit in to the relations of production, to the machine of labour, more than anything else. So these are people who are doing well, you know, they're white, they have few financial concerns. Uh, still, um, they have this experience of being snubbed by an internet that they may not initially understand or ripped off by uh, corporate or <laughs> individual crooks. And this had a really serious psychological effect, not just on my dad, but both of them. And it was a real shock to be, I can't go into it, unfortunately, but it was a real shock to be seriously fucked up by something that happened on the internet. And it was a real kind of like uh, cause of argument in their relationship. And anyway, look, it necessitated a whole lot of, you know, learning about privacy and security. Anyway, so there's the stuff that you know from Marx. Um, or that I might know from Marx or you might know from Marx or others about work and, you know, our, how it alienates us from each other, how we define ourselves in terms of material relations and all of that stuff. But it's kind of interesting and can be quite distressing or enlightening depending on your perspective to see really firsthand how a thing like like that works in people's lives. And, and I saw this with this whole kind of like be online safely conversation with my parents. Now, this thing that, you know, could be enriching, especially for my dad, has become a frustration or what we might call exclusion, um, which is much more than exclusion. It's the inevitable result of what a worker can become or how they can feel when there's no more work to do. So anyway, I spoke to a really nice bloke today on, on the way to my psychiatrist, changed the medication, can you tell? Um, he's called Keith, 65, very chic, absolutely charming, 
I'm working um, six days a week in his Uber um, because, hey, not all boomers were lucky. And we talked about, you know, his gig, uh, which was fashion marketing and how that had changed because, you know, Muggins goes on and says, oh, well, yes, of course, I've heard about that and the textile industry has moved offshore and, oh, did you hear about Rana Plaza and all those Bangladeshi women who died? So, yeah, blah, blah, blah. I'm so sorry if you've ever been my Uber driver. I always give five stars unless you've really shat me, in which case, and I think that this is the ethical thing to do, no rating at all rather than one. Anyway, he was talking about his job loss as though it was his fault. And, you know, he said, oh, well, you know, I just, it's been my fault. I haven't really kept up with the times. And, um, you know, that's why, you know, I'm doing this this Uber thing now and, you know, I mean, it's not great money and, in fact, it's hugely exploitative in his view. I'm not using his real name, Uber. And we had a good chat to the point that I was a bit late for my shrink. And I got to tell him and really talk to him um, in a way that I wish I could talk to my dad without insulting him because his feeling of exclusion runs so deep and he, he can't really ga- give a name to it, whereas Keith was like, oh, yes, that makes sense. I don't know, maybe he was appeasing me, but he was doing a very good job of looking enlightened. And I just said, you know, mate, like don't blame yourself for a world that excludes all of us, you know. Um, we should all share and it's an abundance, you know, and exclusion is not your fault, but it's an inevitable story written not even by the ruling class but by the relations of production, by the system, you know, the system, which is not a human thing. You don't just have a hissy fit at the ruling class and you just don't say, well, some people are assholes and they're greedy. You look at things as they are and how you may even explain them to yourself as being all natural or inevitable or some people just have bad luck. No, no, this system that you can't moralise at because it is a machine that's the problem, right? Anyway, so the point is, I guess, you know, my dad or me, Keith, you, um, many people have such moments where we feel as though we are to blame for our disasters, right? Our workplace disasters or our feelings of exclusion. And many of these moments are very, very long and interrupted. And we might blame ourselves for saying we don't we don't fit um, and we don't have virtue. But the point is that the entire industrial age has never really had any virtue and was never made to fit the needs of the many, but just the few. So I guess I'm just saying if you're a bit down about what you see as your lack of um, success, think about building a world of work that fits us and also one that fits the bloody survival of the the natural world itself and not to go around chiding yourself so much for for not fitting um even having said that I know how deep it can go and I saw how deep it can go with my dad like a person who's always been enamored of technology and now I feel I'm guessing doesn't like it because of this psychological block like he feels excluded from the world of work. He doesn't feel as though – or he. I, I think he feels a sense of identity dissolving. And my point is, look, baby, you're not garbage, right? It's the system what's fucked. Um, I promise to get a proper guest on next week um, and or if I can't, 
um, because of one thing and indeed another. Maybe use more correct uh, Marxist parlance for the one or two truly scholarly people who would deign to roll around in the mud of my quasi-understanding. Goodbye from knackers. Goodbye from the Vag. I hope that was of some use. I do apologise for the emotion. Perhaps it's the new medication. If you care to throw a dollar at me, you know, why not? I, I mean, you, you know, you don't have to, of course. Um, don't feel guilty if you don't. There are far better people to give it to. If you fancy giving some to me, oh, Jesus, Helen. Patreon.com forward slash Helen Razor. That's Razor with an E. I, I will endeavour to bring you something very, very decent in the very, very near future. I can but apologise for all things except for capitalism, which is capitalism's fault. Smash it and indeed the state. Bye. You've been listening to Knackers and the Vag. <laughs> <laughs>